Hello, my name is John Brink and we are podcasting on the Brink and Prince George, British Columbia. Prince George, for those of you that are watching from far away, uh, British Columbia is the most pr beautiful province in Canada. And then Prince George is virtually the center of British Columbia, about 800 kilometers north of Vancouver. Our guest today is a special guest I've known for many, many years. It's a very interesting background. His name is Rob from Adricum. Yeah. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. And so tell us a bit about yourself and your background. Now, it kind of sounds to me like I may be wrong here that Rob from Adricum sounds kind of Dutch to kind, me. Kind, just a little bit. Klein, a Klein Beetje, as they would say in a Dutch. A Klein Beetje, as we right. say in Holland. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I'm born and raised in Prince George. Um, okay. My, my parents came here in 1962. I uh, grew up just, just over here, actually, a couple of blocks from where we are right now. Miller Edition? Miller Edition, yeah. yeah. On Ingle Butt Street. Ingledew Street. Ingledew, yeah. yeah. Okay, I lived in Gorse. I, I, remem I remember, I used to deliver newspapers to okay. in that neighborhood, so I, I remember where you, where you lived, and uh, absolutely, I uh, spend a lot of time in Clayton A. Park, that's where I, I kind of, that was like my backyard, Yeah. played tennis on the tennis court, and yeah. uh, baseball at Gyro Park, it was, a, it's a fan, it was the best play, I mean, you talk about Prince George being a, a beautiful place, it was, a, it was the best place to grow up no in that neighborhood, it. literally walk downtown for whatever you need, Walk to the park, walk to the river, hang yeah. out with your friends. It was the it was the best. And it getting better and better all the time, right? Yeah. Because in the sixties it was still semi boom town and maturing and then since that time all kinds of things happen. And we're gonna talk about that a lot actually yeah. today. Yeah. So one of the things that comes to mind is uh, College of New Caledonia. Yeah. The other one that comes to mind big time is uh, UNBC, University of Northern British Columbia, yeah. the best small university in Canada. Absolutely. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that yeah. quite a bit because that's where you spend a lot of your time. So I want to know a little bit more about your background or your family's background in Holland. Okay. So, uh, so your family came from... Holland, which part of Holland? We're, my parents are both from the sort of the western part near uh, The Hague, west, west of Rotterdam in that area. Lots of greenhouses there now. Um, and that's where my parents are from. Um, after World War II, uh, they left and they came to Canada. And after World War II? Correct. That was in 1945. When did, when did they come to Canada? They, they left in 1952. Oh, in 1950. Yeah, it's an unbelievable. I mean, imagine you're from Holland, this little country. They took a boat uh, to Halifax. Yeah. And then a train across Canada all the way. I can only imagine what they were thinking. Four days, five nights. I, I <laughs> yeah. did it too. So, yeah, I yeah. can only. I, my hat's off to yeah. those of you who did that. Why that's did they? Why, what made them come to opportunity. Canada? Opportunity. Still today. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why people, that, that's how people come here and to places yeah. like Prince George. It's fantastic. The things yeah. that. The opportunity that you that you can have, um, and at the same time, it was. I mean, I don't know this, thankfully, but it must have been hard there. Um, so much destroyed um, after the war. Yeah, right? yeah, the and, Second World War. Yeah, and so they they came to Vancouver Island. Right. Um, my dad worked at the experimental farm, um, and then in that 19 was a government. Yeah. Uh, 
place where they experimented with different things. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I should have. So he yeah, did yeah. a lot of he did a lot of work on crops, yeah. um, and then in 1962, so 10 years later, they moved to Prince George, and my dad worked at the experimental farm here, which is by the which was by the airport. Yeah, uh, lots of people remember the barn with the rainbow yeah, yeah. on the side, yeah. and uh, and so he worked there for a long time and worked on winter hardiness of different fruits and vegetables. Worked wow. on strawberries, on potatoes, yeah. um, and and did a lot of that. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. Way back then, there was research in Prince George. This exactly. was way before university, yeah. And there was research going on in Prince George. Yeah. And, so why um, did they close it? I wonder. Well, that's another whole question. I I I don't I don't. I barely remember my dad. I, I remember my dad working there and uh, driving because they would cross the railroad bridge. Yeah, and that's yeah. when the, the when the, the cars went on the railroad bridge, bridge. on that's each right. side. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So yeah. I really remember that as a kid going over that bridge. And yeah. So I remember him going to work, but I don't. I don't remember sort of all the politics of of why it was closed down. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, they were doing research there, and mm. and uh, like I said, his specialty was on winter hardiness of fruits and vegetables. Right. I just how many siblings did you have? I I have six sisters, and six one, sisters and one brother. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And and are they all in the region here? Or? No, and and actually most of them were born on Vancouver Island. So okay. here's my parents coming to Prince George in the winter of 1962 with. With five little kids, yeah, and uh, and then my uh, myself and my two closest sisters were born here, yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, I have a big family, and that's been yeah. great. I have one sister who's still in Prince George, yeah, yeah, and everyone else is uh, my all brothers in place, Korea, yeah. and they're all and they're all over the place, yeah. Any in Holland? Nope, I still no. have family there, yeah, cousins yeah. and and aunts and uncles, uh, but a lot of my dad's side ended up coming to Canada actually, yeah. Now, what happened is after the Second World War, because it was such a tough go, uh, and I was born in 1945, I okay. remember the war well. Uh, you know, I was five years old, and the, uh, I was in the extreme northeastern part of yeah. Holland, where the Canadians came through yeah. Holland and through Zeeland, the islands, and yeah. then Westland, Rotterdam along Amsterdam and they pushed the invading yep. armies through Groningen back into Germany and then we were living right there within 10 minutes of the German border oh, wow. and I still remember planes overhead sure. I remember yeah. uh, you know the uh, Germans retreating and and uh, and the Canadians right behind them and war going on they blew yeah. up the bridges and yeah. a lot of bad things happened and then the winter of 44, 45 was they called hunger the winter. winter. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, my mom had three kids. Uh, I was the youngest, born in 1940, and then a brother that was one year older, and a sister was two years older. Okay, and then my dad was drafted into the Dutch army. Yeah, uh, you know, in early 1940, they were defeated in a matter of days by what we call the Blitzkrieg. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's so current because that's what we see in the Ukraine is where the Russians are tried with a blitzkrieg overrun mm -hmm. the other country and and put it into submission. It obviously is still a work in progress. It's terrible, mm -hmm. the things that are happening. Mm -hmm. But then with my dad, the last time that we heard from him 
or my family heard from him that when the Germans to try to submit the Dutch bombed yep. Rotterdam, although they already committed, the Dutch already committed they would surrender, but they still bombed the center of Rotterdam. Yep. And that's the last place they saw my dad. Wow. And we didn't know for five years as to what happened to him. Now this brings it home to you indirectly yep. is because what happened he fled with a lot of other soldiers into what they called Westland. Yeah. That's where your parents are from. Yeah. And in particular, a town called Scravenzande. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that was there. That. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where he was underground okay. and worked oh. for the resisting yeah. uh, forces underneath it. And, and to get a picture of it for our guests watching, uh, Westland then already was a lot of glass houses where yeah. they grew tomatoes and, and grapes and all kinds of, still Peppers. today. Yeah. You know, if you fly over there, all you see is glass Absolutely. houses yeah. and they have these little canals and they haul all the fruits that they grow to the marketplace on the boats and all of the, it's beautiful, beautiful, close to the yeah. sea, yeah, it really but it is. wasn't then. So then when he came back uh, uh, finally in uh, May of, uh, uh, April of 1945, uh, they hadn't really heard of him and he, for all intents and purposes they thought he had died. Yeah. But he had a helmet with him with a bullet right through it. They caught him in Westland and they nearly killed him, uh, chasing him through the uh, glass structures. Oh, interesting. And, uh, but he survived, Jeez. at least physically. Mentally, a lot of those individuals that went through all of this, uh, it affected them yeah. for the rest of their life. The same will happen as we look at the Ukraine and the things happen. I know it from myself. It will affect the young people and the people uh, you know, yeah. of all the ages for the rest of their lives. I went back to Holland in 95 for the 50th anniversary of the liberation. It was yeah, a real... I was there too. It yeah. was like... To be somebody from Canada who was born from Dutch parents, to yeah. have, have had that opportunity is something I'll never forget. And yeah. to see, um, yeah, just it's incredible at that time, that was only 50 years before that this stuff was going on. And yeah. to have been able to be there and to get a sense of sort of Canada's contribution, if I can put it that, it sounds kind of weird, but there's just great appreciation there, I think, for this country and it's something that will always be with me. From the small little kids up. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's young people there <laughs> yeah. and, and they weren't there. Like yeah. it wasn't that there was a whole bunch no, of veterans it there. Just it was young people. Forward, exactly. right? Yeah, absolutely. And so what I've done, uh, Rob, is that for at least 10, 11 or 12 years, uh, I try always at uh, the 11th when we remember mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, you know, the war and, and, and we had the two minutes of silence. Yeah. I speak to a number of schools, usually three or four and uh, down the coast and here in Northern yeah. BC yeah. to talk about what, what does it really mean? Why yeah. do we have yeah. Yeah. the two minutes silence? Into how quickly it all can change for all the things we take for granted. Oh. And overnight it changes. Now, obviously, again, talking about uh, the, the Ukraine, we, we see it on the television happen. And that's what happened in Holland mm -hmm. and those countries as well, how quickly it all changed. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the appreciation, obviously, of the Canadians that 
for all intents and purposes, liberated mm -hmm. Holland, mm -hmm. is still deeply, deeply enrooted and remains there. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's um, I actually was, it's, it's funny when Canada made it to the World Cup in soccer, I was really hoping that they would play in the Dutch group. Yeah. Because I think it's one of the things that I would be willing to bet you that if Holland was playing Canada in the World Cup, there'd be a lot of people in Holland cheering for Canada. Oh, yeah. And that would just, too, and, we, and I've never experienced, like, yeah. no one's experienced nope. Canada playing Holland in the World yeah. Cup. Yeah. And it would be, it, that was, I thought, oh, I was really hoping, but they're playing yeah. Belgium. I'm sure they'll get a lot of, I'm sure they'll get a lot of Dutch people cheering for no Canada. No question about game. it. You know, yeah. we were liberated April the 12th, 1945 in the town yeah. that I lived in. Yeah. And, and then the Canadians uh, that liberated us, the things were very, very difficult for quite a number of years. And, mm -hmm. and behind us was a little schoolyard. And every morning at daybreak, all the kids would go down there and they feed them bread with the butter and cheese yeah. and the butter and cheese was bigger than the bread and we were all called Johnny. We didn't speak the language, but we did, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, all and, called Johnny, that's funny. Yeah, and then from that point forward, I always knew that I would go to Canada to the land yeah. of my heroes, yeah. right? Yeah. And I did, you know, yeah. so always stayed with me. Yeah. You know? yeah. I, 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 I've always kind of wondered that to the extent to which that, how did that influence my parents coming here? I, I assume it did. Um, but it's such a different, I, I can, again, I can only imagine back then that this place was so big compared to what they were used to, but. But the fear then was because I had several uncles and aunts that, and family members that yeah. emigrated to either the States or yeah. to Canada. And, and one of the reasons was that they did it for, to give their kids a future. Yeah. And the other one was the fear of that the Russians would come in you know, pushing the Germans out right. in submission, and then the Russians would take over Europe or the uh, free yeah, Europe. Yeah. And the first thing they would do, identify the underground of the resistance mm -hmm. and clean, you know, and clean them up and kill them, right? And so a lot of people were afraid of that and, since, and subsequently left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. interesting times. So that kind of tells us uh, a little bit about background. Now, the other thing that, uh, you know, the, uh, you, you were so involved from the time that I initially knew you mm. with UNBC and, uh, you know, and, and UNBC for our guest is the University of Northern Base Columbia that uh, was, uh, came about actually in the 80s and then the government committed yeah. to building a University of Northern British Columbia. I was quite involved in it because uh, I was a writing president for right. Prince George North at the time. And, uh, you know, politics has a lot to do with that because that's where the funding comes from. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and the incumbent government was in, in power. And, uh, you know, so the, uh, the, the push behind mm -hmm. the University of Northern British Columbia was amazing. A lot mm -hmm. of people, key individuals, uh, Murray Sandler, uh, you know, and, and a whole bunch of other people, uh, uh, you know, were uh, encouraging everybody to support it throughout Northern BC. Yeah. And then 16,000 people signed, uh, you know, uh, uh, for the, uh, and, and paid the $5 yeah. for this, group to uh, support UNBC and then 
I think it was in the late 80s, 87, 88, that, uh, yep. you know, we had uh, a writing uh, annual meeting of the uh, Socrates and Penticton, and we had busloads of people going down there with buttons of UNBC yeah. and signs, and we kind of <laughs> took over the whole convention because we were going to have this university, yeah. and not just the university, a subsidiary of somebody else, but a freestanding university. And then finally in uh, 1989, uh, they signed off on the legislation to create a University of Northern British Columbia, and and the rest is history. Yeah, sort Tough. of, sort of, because that it's makes still it sound a like work it was easy in progress, <laughs> right? That's right. So, but you became involved right yeah. virtually from the beginning. <clears throat> yes, sort of from the beginning. I uh, so when I grew up in Prince George and went to BCIT for journalism school after I went to CNC for a year. And so I, I went to, the B, to BCIT, the British Columbia Institute of Technology, did journalism there, got my first job at, the, at, at what now is, uh, geez, it's, it was CJCI in 94X and, uh, at the radio station in Prince George. And so I remember the, some of the first, the, I re actually distinctly remember the first live news conference we ever covered was when Bruce Strachan, the, the, the Minister of Advanced yeah. Education at the time, yeah. announced the location of the campus. Yeah. That was the first live news conference we did with a yeah. cell phone that was as big as, this, as your coffee table. Exactly. And, and yeah, and so that really started my connection with, with UNBC. I, yeah. At BCIT, we had to do a documentary, a radio documentary for our, one of our assignments. And I did it on the creation of the University of the North. Yeah. So it's been really part of me, uh, my entire career. Right. Um, and and that's also that's been a real gift to have had that opportunity yeah. to be part of something that really is more than just sort of an institution of higher learning. It's more than a place to, for people to send their kids to get education. Yeah. It's the expression of the of the will of the region. Yeah. And that's the part of it that I always found so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the Canadian soldiers being your heroes and and I don't I never really thought of it really until just now. But those some of those people that you refer to, Murray Sadler and Tom Stedman and Horst Sander and yeah. Elsie Gerdes and yeah. uh, so many Ed John, so many of those people that were part of it were kind of I had never seen anything like that in my life. I'd yeah. never seen that up until that time a group of people from here saying, this is what we're going to do. It has to happen. It, it, yeah, it wasn't, it was never sort of a question. No. Even though looking back on it, it was, it should never have happened. Like they no. should never have been successful. No. When you there look at the so population. Much, there like, was so much other pressure on government because there's only yeah, so yeah. much money available. Yeah. And Stan right. Hagen, I believe, was the Minister of Finance and uh, who got a lot of pressure from different yeah. directions. You know, so, but we were not going to be denied. No. That was no question No, and this. I don't remember being here at the time ever thinking yeah. that we wouldn't succeed. It was just yeah. a question of sort of when. Yeah. Uh, and maybe a bit of how, but never yeah. if. Yeah. And, and I remember, too, some of the early, um, I remember talking about Stan Hagen, I remember the article, I think it was in the Globe and Mail, uh, that they did a story about this sort of university being talked about in northern BC for some reason. Yeah, it was and, not a good article. And well, it ended up being a great article because yeah. it galvanized support. So Stan yeah. Hagen apparently was quoted in this article as saying, 
uh, you know, asked, are they going to have a university in the north? And he goes, well, they don't need it. All they care about in the north is how many trees did you cut down today? Or how were things down in the mine? That was apparently what he said. But um, it triggered something else, right? Oh, it, it, there's nothing that brings life. people together than a common villain. Yeah. And I have heard from people that maybe Stan was a misquote, or I shouldn't say that, Minister Hagen was misquoted. I, I have heard that maybe he didn't exactly say that, but it had the effect of if there was, if, if there was any doubt up to then, there was no doubt after that that Correct. the North would not be denied. Yeah, no, and so no it really, that. in some ways, was seen, I think, at the time as a, as a blow to the Northern campaigners, yeah. but it ended up being the, the exact ammunition that they needed. Yeah, no, and, yeah and no question about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And fascinating. And then, you know, to have then something like that, and then the legislation was passed, I believe, in 89, and then from there on in, it became a question of location. Yeah. And then it became a question of what will it look like and how do we start. And the programs. And, and, and the programs yeah. and, and all the other things that follow the, the decision. Yeah. And what it is now, it is absolutely beautiful and fabulous. Since that time, obviously, the medical yeah. uh, uh, part of it and then uh, the uh, uh, connection to the hospital. Yes. You know, and Oh, it's transformative. Un- unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, they'll never be the same here. No. And that's for the better. Like that's so significant. The whole region. Absolutely. Right? No, I, I, and I think you could even say northern Canada. Yeah. I mean, what, what we're able to do here uh, for the benefit of the territories or northern Saskatchewan. I, I, know, I know people who were some of the early faculty at UNBC now working at University of Saskatchewan bringing some of that same mindset, uh, yeah. that same sort of vision yeah. to there, it, there, it's fantastic the kind, what, what universities can do with tentacles, uh, how they reach out uh, is, is mind-boggling, the effect yeah. that they can have um, just because of the work that they do, the research that they do, the yeah. innovation that, that emerges from it, the, the young and not-so-young people who go through it and get a, a kind of an education. I, yeah. It's not, education isn't the same everywhere. And no. we used to talk about that a lot, that there was, there's a certain aptitude, there's certain things that you learn that might be the same at UNBC as the University of Toronto or right. the University of Paris. But then there's a whole bunch of other things about how you think about things, not just what you know of things, yeah. that comes through your experiences and the kind of education that we were able to deliver here yeah. in the region, in indigenous communities, yeah. in hospitals, in, 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 in real places, yeah. not, not, not uh, perfect labs. Yeah. Um, just, uh, I, I think that the people, uh, I think the people, and there's a couple of them in this room with me, um, that have graduated from that place, they will make contributions that will change this place. Yeah. I'm an alumni of UNBC. Yeah, so we're so. all alumni in this room yeah. right now. And, and so, and, and I, I tell the story all the time, you know, at one point we, uh, a number of months ago, I think we had six or eight people sitting around our boardroom table as we were deliberating where the brain group is going and what it is doing and yeah. blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, say, at one point saying, you know something? Every single one around this table is an alumni of the University of Northern Michigan. Yeah. Can you imagine that? I sure can. And, and it's going to become normal all the time around here. 
unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, it's, I, I think my, the, the thing that I really value the most from my time at UNBC was getting to know thousands of students. You know, I go around with the, with the camera or the video camera yeah. and we did, a, we did a lot of stuff like this at uh, yeah. UNBC to just help people spread the word about the place. Exactly. And the people I got to meet that now I, I, I sort of see that some of them are in Africa, some of them are in Europe. Some of them work for the United Nations, all big corporations, world, all right? over. And, and just to have been able to sort of be part of their, of their development for one period of time, I, th I think is, is great. But I think I, I, I have a perspective on that that's very unusual. And I wish sometimes that people had sort of a, maybe a, a, some sort of indication maybe on their forehead, UNBC grad. Yeah. Because it would shock people in Prince George and all of Northern BC. No question about it. If they could see, holy, all of these people are grads of that place. And they're and, all here in the region as well. Yeah, yeah. You know? all over the region. And, the, and they're doctors and teachers and, and chiefs and mayors. And they're all over. Now, your role was there when you started as director of communications. No, I started as a media relations officer. Okay. So my job was to talk to the media. Yeah. Um, at, did a, we did a TV show on Shock Cable. So when was the, when, when did When you did start? I start? Yeah. 1992. I, yeah. I had turned 22 about four weeks before I started. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I uh, never went to university. No. I'd never gone to a university. No. I, I never had that opportunity. Yeah. I lived growing up in Prince George to go yeah. to university. So this was pretty crazy talking about a university and having never been to one. So one of the one of the first things I did in the '90s was I thought I better start taking some courses and practice yeah. what I preached. Yeah. So which was also fantastic and terrific opportunities. So um, so, but you were there for thirty years. No, uh, no, it probably seemed like no. Uh, I was there from from 1992 to 2015. To so, 2015, yeah. 1992. Yeah, so 23 so, years. Uh, 23 years. Yeah. Well, that's a long time. It was a long time, more than half of my life. I my was at UNBC. God. Yeah. And then uh, now, you know, just to kind of continue on UNBC, I was so fortunate to have uh, uh, the new president, uh, yep. the, the first interim president, uh, uh, Dr. Jeff Payne, mm -hmm. and now recently uh, appointed as president of UNBC as a guest last week, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had a huge opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, to talk about uh, the university, to talk about uh, all the things that are going on, but not only what is going on, where do we go from here, what will happen next, and uh, all those other things around it, you know. So, uh, and, and in particular, between UNBC, the College of New Caledonia, which is amazing mm -hmm. in its own right, mm -hmm. and then looking at the university and the college and all the satellites mm -hmm. they have all over because this university, this college and Prince George is the capital I call of Northern British Columbia. But for our guests watching, if we're sitting in the middle of the province, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is uh, 800 kilometers to north, of Vancouver, 800 kilometers north from here is the Yukon border. Yeah. And then the same looking at either direction, east or west. This is big, big, big. territory. Yeah. I remember in those early days talking about the founding of UNBC, uh, people talking about, uh, you know, a region the size of France with 300,000 odd, bit more than that, people. Um, 
which you know looking back on that it should that should never have supported a university no um that just just the the odds that had to be overcome um i mean this place in many ways unbc i should say was modeled after universities in northern sweden northern finland yeah. um no norway um and those places were very similar pretty, pretty yeah. sparsely populated relatively speaking yeah but there too I, I think there's a bit of a different um how those universities developed again was was far more than than sort of just if i could put it that way places to go for an education yeah these were these were places as unbc is that i i don't think we talk about enough as places that are really at the forefront of art research and innovation yeah. uh, in our context. I think yep. that's really important. It's it's about it's not just about um, education or research for the sake of it. It's education and research within this context for this place. Yeah. And no and question. that that's very different and I think I don't know if the founders actually get enough credit for making or putting the conditions in place that would actually also make UNBC very good like it's number one in mclean's ranking not that that's the be-all and end-all kind of no but, but still, whatever it's still okay. it's it's great um and and very research intensive that was not i mean when you say that, you know it was created and the rest is history that was not a foregone conclusion no. and that took real constant to this day effort to make sure that it's an excellent university it's research intensive yeah it, it is absolutely relevant to its place yeah. uh, and takes the experience of this place and brings it to the world. Yeah. That I think is all very unusual. And I think yeah. we, we should, I think as, as people who just live here, um, whether you're alumni, business people, uh, citizens of any kind, I, I think there's still a lot of work for us all to do to support these places. To yeah. support UNBC, to support CNC, no question. it's very difficult, I think, to keep this up. The um, and I think the fact that uh, faculty in the medical school uh, go to the grocery store and people, you know, thank them. I, yeah. I think that's really important. That whatever people who live here can do to support these institutions, I think they should do it. Yeah, I, I agree one hundred percent. You see, the same is that uh, you know, in terms of. Uh, it was a challenge to get it off the ground and get it to accept it because of all the things that you already said. Studies were done in Sweden and yep. other places yep. extensively to say it can be done and this is what it looks like. And, uh, and, uh, it, but even then, it is amazing that it, uh, oh. it happened at that point. But yep. it's the driver between change in Northern British Columbia and, and the facts still remain, uh, Rob, that Northern British Columbia produces 80% of the GDP in the province of British Columbia. And I would say to my fellows in Vancouver, hey guys, don't forget about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's what, uh, where it comes from. And yep. the opportunities here, I always believed, and I've been here since 1965, so it's 57 years or so, that mm -hmm. I deeply believe in the opportunity opportunities that exist in Northern British Columbia. Yeah. We have the resources, we have the location, we have the location in terms of the world market, we have the transportation infrastructure, road, rail, air, and, and, and all of those things we have. We can attract uh, entrepreneurship, we can attract uh, 
capital. We can attract innovation and all of those things. The, the key determining factor will become access to a skilled workforce. At, at brains. That's, yeah. if that will be the, the key factor to attract capital at the end of the day. And I said that when uh, I had the opportunity to support part of uh, the College of New Caledonia, and I still believe that in the university as well. And I believe that we now have to go even one step further, and I call it uh, a center of excellence in mm -hmm. terms of developing between the College of New Caledonia and UNBC to, to focus on something that kind of looks in a way like BCIT. Obviously, BCIT is massive in terms of intake, but we still have an opportunity to further develop those areas in terms of uh, developing new technology in terms of equipment that we use mm -hmm. for how do we manufacture finished products from these resources that we have. And how do we uh, you know, incorporate uh, the skill sets that we need for tomorrow's manufacturers and, and all of those things and how do we stimulate entrepreneurship, I believe that is still something that we have to do and I've been uh, you know, actively involved in saying we need to develop a, uh, a center of excellence yeah. that focuses on those areas. And uh, I'd add one thing to what you're saying. I agree with all of that and I would add after your sentences in a carbon constrained world. Absolutely. So as we are imagining our future that is with um, uh, lower emissions of yeah. greenhouse gases, uh, increased senior government and, and corporate interest in doing things that have a lower carbon footprint, we have to be leading on that. And I think that's an, another opportunity that we have. Especially here. Absolutely. Yeah, more than anywhere else that I know of, especially here, and we have the uh, the, the resources to do it, we have yeah. the uh, the land base to do it, and all the other things. And to be a leader in that area, in particular, that people come from far and wide to see how we do it and how how can it be done. And again, those institutions yeah. will be critical for all of that. We we we've we have examples of that now. Yeah. There, there are people I know that come from all over to look at the Wood Innovation and yeah. Design Center. Yeah. And I've, I've toured people who have come from all over to see UNBC and in particular the bioenergy plant. Yeah. I, I think that we are doing this. And yeah. I think that there's a belief, um, maybe, maybe in the region um, or in places like Prince George or in British Columbia as a whole, we, we in British Columbia broadly, and I agree with you about the North, but I think the opportunity is broader. We, we can do this. Yeah. And, and, and the best part is we are, and we have things to show. Right below the street, right below our feet is a, a district energy system that yeah. was that, uh, you know, two, I remember this a couple of years ago when it was minus 40. Yeah. We were setting sort of marks in Prince George that people who studied this in Ottawa, in Toronto, never had never seen yeah. a district energy system running 100% on renewable energy, yeah. heating a place of this size yeah. at minus 40. Yeah. Never. No. So we're doing this. And yeah. that, to me, is the most exciting part of this I agree. Uh, future that we have is, is, and going back to the university and the infrastructure we have yeah. and the natural assets that we have, yeah. these also position us 
to be able to shift our our attention yeah. to to the important issues and the future, and that increasingly is uh, involving uh, low carbon and uh, and no, recognition of greenhouse gases. No question about that. And I agree with you. We already are leading. We got to go beyond that and say we are the leaders. Absolutely. And, and so, and therefore, what we have to do, government policy in terms of funding that is required for whatever we have to do, we have to say, no, no, we are the leaders. This is the area where we want to do that. We already can show the results. And, and so that, because if we don't believe, who will? That's and right. And we do believe. And That's we have right. the examples of it, you know. That's right. I want to talk to you about, oh, I can talk for you for hours and hours, you know, so, but uh, obviously, but... Uh, so I just want to take you just one step uh, further forward and you then left UNBC and you got a uh, position with the city of Prince George That's as right. a communications director or? That's uh, a director of external relations it was called. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was yeah. generally around uh, t telling the community what's going on at the city basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, 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 Quite a change of scenery in a way, but not a way. really in another, right? It, I always say, people, it's a different organization, but it's still Prince George. And, yeah. And it was, it was uh, again, a really... I, I, so at UNBC, too, in addition to my job, I was very fortunate to be able to take uh, uh, courses there. And so yeah. I ended up uh, with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and I ended up doing a lot of my coursework on government. And in particular, I had a real... Uh, real interest, largely because of the work in Scandinavia that led to the establishment yeah, yeah. of UNBC, that everything comes full circle. Yeah. But real uh, interest of local government. And so there was, uh, it was a terrific opportunity to be able to join the city. I, I, I literally, my going away party at UNBC was the exact anniversary of the passing in the legislature of the act that created UNBC yeah, yeah. 25 years later. Yeah. Uh, so to be able to to be part of the 25th anniversary and then use sort of be feel very good about uh, exploring a new opportunity in local government was uh, was fantastic. And I yeah. learned a lot. I mean, I, I remember as a reporter covering city council, telling people at the time, geez, I learned more, uh, you know, in two years covering council than I had learned in the previous 20 years living here. and, and that was, I mean, I multiply that by a hundred actually working in the city. Yeah. I learned so much about Prince George um, and, and really came to appreciate a lot of these, these things that we're talking about in terms of these fantastic opportunities that we have. Yeah. And so then when the opportunity came to then start to apply this interest that I'd been cultivating since early days at UNBC around uh, low carbon and um, the ability to address things like climate change through local action, how could, how could I say no? It was a fantastic opportunity to join this rapidly growing organization, the Community Energy Association. So it, it all worked out for me really well and I really appreciated my time at the city. Just local government is, I, I you know, <laughs> Nobody paid me to say this. They're they're underappreciated. Yeah. Uh, council and staff. It's yeah. really hard work. And and this Prince George is something like three hundred and thirty square kilometers of space. If you took, physically yeah, big three hundred and for a, for a city of seventy five thousand odd people. Yeah. I mean that's unheard of in a European yeah. context. Yeah. And is. if you were to take all the pipe that we never see 
um, water pipes, storm water pipes, sewer pipes, and lay it all end to end, it would go from Prince George to Winnipeg. Yeah, and, and under extreme conditions, size. 40 he, below it, is not... 40 below to 40 above this past year. Yeah. Um, so huge extremes, fat, yeah. just so, so difficult, like such yeah. a huge job to keep a city like this running. And, yeah. And so that to be to have been part of that 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 team of people was is again something I'll never forget. Great people, great commitment to Prince George. So how long were you six in years? That, I was at the city for six years. Yeah, and then which seems short after being at UNBC for twenty three. Yeah, but then then you made <laughs> another move within the same region, and you became communications director for. And so now I'm, I'm the same title, Director of External Relations yeah. for an organization called the Community Energy Association. So what does that mean or what does it do? Yeah, what is this place? I get that question yeah. all the time. Everybody knows what UNBC or the city yeah, is, yeah. but not as many people know what the Community Energy Association is. So CEA grew out of a committee that the government, the um, two government ministries, uh, Energy and Mines and Senior Municipal government Affairs, of Provincial Government, yeah, yeah Provincial Government, and the Union of BC Municipalities, which okay. is the Association of BC yeah. Cities and Towns, uh, 25 years ago said, local governments need help in this whole energy issue with energy planning and energy efficiency and energy transition. Uh, who's gonna help them? And so they created this, a committee at first, and then that grew into this thing called the Community Energy Association. Yeah. So this organized and it, and i like it because it really takes in a lot of my background in education and innovation and yeah. and uh, knowledge but also local government and yeah. how we can start to blend all of this together bring our know-how and our smarts together with infrastructure and municipal planning and and create places that are really um innovative in, a, in, in this future world where we're trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions right. and our, on our carbon footprint. Um, and places like, like Prince George, Northern BC, I mean, I remember at UNBC writing articles with the faculty on research they were doing on climate change, the pine beetle, uh, what was happening in the north. There were some, some researchers actually at UNBC who were some of the first to document that climate uh, change was happening more at higher latitudes. So the further north you go, the more effects. The higher you go, higher so higher latitudes, higher altitudes. Climate was already this was happening, and we and people were seeing this. They were documenting it in their research, uh, right here in, in at UNBC. Yeah. And so to be able to now take all of this and help communities um, from Hazelton to Vancouver. Um, do things in the local level to really allow their communities to be at the forefront of creating communities that that don't emit as much greenhouse gas right and lo and behold how that produces or provides economic opportunities how that creates a healthier population how that also maybe means more affordability I mean, we spend millions on energy in a place like Prince George. Imagine if it was all local, uh, what that would mean to stimulate the local economy. And so there's of, all sorts of this. That's just fascinating. Yeah, in a lot of people's mind, uh, they said that that is more expensive. Yeah. You know, so it costs too much. That's it, not so, right? It, it doesn't have to be. No. I, I think there are examples where it is, 
But I think increasingly people are starting to see that even, even an electric car, for example, uh, over the life of the vehicle saves money from you know, a regular car. Yeah. Um, I think too, uh, I'm, I'm becoming more exposed in my new job to people who build houses. And what these builders who are building very energy efficient homes are saying that this is a mind shift. Once you're, once you're doing, building super energy efficient homes and once you know how to do it, it doesn't have to cost much more. No. Uh, it, it all comes down to sort of how you approach your work. And so again, I think it's, when I think about Prince George, man, I don't know of too many communities that produce as many building materials as Prince George. And yeah. so if, there's a, if there is a transformation happening in construction, well then I think the place that makes a lot of lumber and a lot of panels um, potentially has something to really participate in this. And that's what I find so fascinating as well. Yeah, one of the things that we do in, in my uh, company yeah. is that the Brink Group, uh, we, we are lumber manufacturers and then there's one silo and then the other silo is uh, logistics and warehousing. Yeah. And the other silo is uh, 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 real estate, uh, residential, uh, uh, commercial and industrial. But yeah. talking about the residential part now that uh, we uh, right now building and doing about two or three subdivisions. Right. Uh, but be very, n very knowingly or, or very aware of the green building things that we want to do and for us to incorporate yeah. not what it is but where it goes. All of those things to us as a developer are extremely important. Yeah. To incorporate that into today's houses. Yeah, I'm, I didn't know, honestly, I didn't know very much about this six months ago. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm learning a lot. I find it fascinating. Um, I think, you know, and, and you would be a better one to, to talk about this, but you know, a lot of people say homes shouldn't be too airtight, homes breathe. And, and the way I've come to learn about this from some of the builders is, we breathe too, but we don't breathe over every square inch of our body. We breathe in one place yeah. and, and, and homes can be built that way too. Exactly. And if you, you be much better off controlling the flow of air in and out, Correct. uh, then, then letting this breathing happen everywhere willy no. nilly. No, and, I, I and so it's fascinating. And yeah. I think too, that we've, we've been thinking like just even myself as a, as a, as a homeowner, I think more or have thought, I should say more about heating than cooling. Yeah. But I think, you know, this past summer, my mom uh, lives in a place, she's 94. Uh, she lives in a place with no cooling. It was over 30 degrees in there during the heat dome. Um, I have a heat pump in my house that provides heat uh, when I need it and provides cooling when I need it. And she came to stay with us for a week because it was comfortable in my home compared to hers. Yeah. And I think this is also where this is, this conversation I think is starting to change about, about that energy efficiency isn't just, isn't just about saving money, it's about having comfortable places to live. Exactly. And it's increasingly, I think, about cooling as well as heating. Um, and, I, and again, I think this is an area where, uh, where we can do some really neat things in, in BC and in places like Prince George that I, I think we, I'd love to see people come here from elsewhere and see how we're doing it. Yeah, and the other part about it, Rob, is that, uh, you know, the, from the entrepreneurial perspective, mm -hmm. is that the marketplace will demand it. So the entrepreneur or the developer or the builder will incorporate it because if they want to have a product that is saleable, exactly. in particular is, is today, 
then they must then think about that in terms of how can we incorporate that to uh, be ahead of what the market at some point will right. demand. No question about that. I, I, I get the I get the impression um, that that we're probably at a stage still right now where the codes and even the builders to some degree uh, are leading the market. But I get the impression from talking to a number of builders, again, through my new job, I have been hearing from a lot of them that the market is rapidly coming up to them. Oh, no, uh, no and and the that. market has come quicker in some ways than, the, than, the, than it took the builders to. Sometimes I hear that. No question about that. You know, but that's where it is going, no question about that mm -hmm. either, right? So, so that's what you're doing now. How long have you been? Just, just over six months. It was in yeah. the fall that I started and um, uh, been learning a lot about uh, buildings, been learning a lot about transportation, uh, been learning a lot about uh, renewable gas and, and what's happening with sort of the bioeconomy, broadly speaking. It's a, it's a fascinating time and it's, and it is really a, a time, I think, for BC and for the North and for Prince George uh, to, sort of, to sort of flex our muscles and yeah. really now, all these years later, take our great natural endowments, yeah. our great human endowments, uh, the know-how that we have in industry, the innovation and knowledge that we're generating at places like the college and the university, yeah. and really bring this together and really show everybody. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, the other thing that I read when I went through some of your material from your background is the notion of a pertency. Yeah. So where, where does that, a lot of people don't really know. They <laughs> I'm hear hearing it, everyone but they turning, really turning don't it off know, now. No. They really yeah. don't know, what, okay, but what is it? So yeah. what is it? So there's this thing. Where does it come from in yeah. your case? Yeah, no, a pertinency is this weird thing that nobody has heard of, but if you live in Northern BC, you have felt the effects of. And what a pertinency was, was a sort of a rule in the government, the, in the provincial government, uh, dating back oh, well before the 50s, uh, but it really took a, took a hold in sort of a post-war, where if you were going to cut down a tree somewhere to make it into something, you had to make it into something in that place. So you couldn't go to Fort Nelson, cut down a tree, uh, put it on a, on, a, on a truck, bring it to Vancouver and make it into a two by four. You, you had to do that sort of in the area of Fort, Saint, of Fort Nelson. Um, and so to some degree, our communities in the North have all benefited from that. Even though again, most people have never heard the term. Um, they, they, it was actually eliminated as a, as a rule uh, about, a decade and a, about a decade and a half ago now. Um, uh, but it's, for me, what I found so interesting about it, again, learning about the North and, and about the development of regions like this and the role of the university. This was all when I was at UNBC uh, doing, doing my, um, my, my coursework that I came across this because it was... Some, somewhat like your story about the founders. And it took people like you and Murray and Horst, they had to get in vehicles, drive to the con political convention, lobby, like that had to be done to get the university. And so I started to think, 
well, what policy does government have for helping regional development? Um, looking at places like Scandinavia, they, they had a number of things in place. And I thought, well, what do we have? And so this was one of the things that we had, that there was this sort of this marriage, in a sense, between communities and their adjacent resources. And at the time that I was doing my, my work on appurtenancy, it was for my master's degree, so I was doing my, my thesis on it. Uh, so was, was that the project you did in your... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, the, so for your thesis, right? Yeah, it was yeah. about appurtenancy. Yeah. And, and so at the time, there were mills being shut down in Mackenzie and Fort St. And, and James. And I remember, because I, I went to those communities uh, to sort of to document what was going on for my research, and they were talking about if we're cutting down trees in this area, they should be processed here. And so this was very central to the, um, to the economic stability of a lot of communities in the north. But again, very few people knew the term. Um, it's, I found that still amazing that this, that this one policy was so central to the, to the economics of so many communities that, that people just don't know what it, people don't know about it. So what I started to think about was, um, what's the modern equivalent of this? That if, if a pertinency is, is sort of from the, sort of the early to mid 1900s, um, if it really came into force through the, the middle part of the century when there were a lot of mills being developed in the, sort of the post-war era, you would know more about that than me. Um, but then this policy sort of technology also changes. In the 80s, you see uh, huge investments in technology that allowed for the, sort of for the first time, I think, that, that a pr productivity of mills could rise, but employment didn't rise at the same level. That sort of started to happen. And so there, what was going on here? And I was thinking, well, what can we do today? Um, we don't, you don't want to just be a victim of technological change. And so I started to think about a pertinency in different ways, more around knowledge, more around the marriage in a sense, not just of a community to its adjacent resources, whether they're, they're trees in that case, but how about know-how um, and, and, and what people know about the resource, um, maybe that could evolve over time and this know-how could be deployed in new ways. And so, um, to sort of keep current. Um, that maybe it didn't just need to be about two by fours and panels. Maybe we could think about this forest resource in new ways. And so, uh, and maybe that would evolve over time. And, and so that's kind of what my thesis was about, how, how maybe in today's society, um, there should be something called, what I called knowledge appurtenancy. So it was the, the, a place and, and the smarts of a place, the know-how within a place could be applied to their resources, not just those resources were owed to the place, it went the other way as well. Yeah. And so that's what I did a lot of my research on and, and, uh, and, I, and that still sort of sits with me every day that it all comes back to what does a place, a particular location uh, do to survive and continue to thrive? Um, and, and for a place like this, again, thinking about the, a future where there's a carbon constrained world, like within the next 20 years, that's the, or 30 years, the goal is to go net zero. What, what does that mean for Prince George? What does that mean for Northern BC? What does that mean for British Columbia? What does that mean to the, to the industries we have today? How can we position those? 
to me, that's knowledge appurtenancy. It's, right. it's taking our smarts, applying it to our place, and, and making things work for the situation and the circumstances that we have. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you say this, uh, the whole notion of pertency, uh, uh, correctly so, uh, you know, was kind of a notion that applied to the forest industry in yeah. particular. Yeah, in and, particular. Uh, but could uh, apply to a lot of other resources as well. Yeah. It is saying that uh, the forest industry is a unique model where, uh, you know, the timber in British Columbia, by and large, probably 98% of it, belongs to you and me, the people. That's right. And so that means that from evolving of forest policy, that it was always not only how do you access timber, you know, by uh, 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 getting a license or tenure, mm-hmm. where you have mm-hmm. renewable license, right. and it all kind of evolved from in the late 50s, in mid 40s, late 50s, around the Prince George area, there used to be yep. 600 sawmills here. Yeah, that's right. And, and the sawmill would go to the bush to cut the wood. And then they would cut, not much volume, uh, one truck load, maybe yep, two, yep. and they would haul it into Planer Row. Well, where was Planer Row? It was where the railroad is. That's, That's right, where yeah. River Road is yeah, now. Yeah. The only company left there virtually is uh, Brink Forest Products. Yeah, my I, I've heard of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In Lakeland. So that was Planer Road. This gone yeah. now River Road. And yeah. uh, so, but the point that I was going to make is that so it evolved all, you know, mm-hmm. this is not all that long ago. No. Nope. My lifetime, I was born in 1940. That's when it was that way here, just, just using me as an example, by age. And then, uh, as you indicated, uh, when you did your thesis on it, uh, where the pressure came on, where less and less people controlled more and more yeah. of the fiber, and then the, the log would travel to the mill and the mill may be a long way away from the community where it was harvested. Right. And so there was then an underlying obligation, not always recognized by tenure holders, that there is a social obligation to return to the province social and economic value. Right. And, uh, and, and preferably in the location where it is harvested. And obviously right. that became a big, big issue, in particular in early 2000 and the policy yeah. of uh, appurtenancy and some other policies in terms of uh, right. force policy were kind of eliminated by the yeah. then, in the early 2000s by the then government. Yeah. And, but still we are looking at that still today as it relates to the carbon footprint. How do we plant more? How do we manage our forest resource better than we do today? How do we grow more fiber per hectare? How can we manage the forest better? Right. There is no place in the world where an um, absolutely unbelievable forest can be grown better than it does in the interior of the province of British Columbia. And no, I, 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 I agree. And I, and I find what's interesting to watch now, I, I think, as you say, there was that period of consolidation. I'm really curious to see, you know, as we sit here today in 2022, I'm really curious if we were having the same conversation in 10 years, what's, what, where, what's happened? 
what's happening if we were to look now back at the next these next 10 years i'm really curious to forward see or back the next 10 years next what year. what's going to happen what how will this work how do we re uh, connect this social element with carbon with forest products uh, things like mass timber and different kinds of Such products. Such an appropriate thought because I'm deeply involved in all of that because I'm, uh, as you know, the uh, umbrella organization yeah. for the forest companies in British Columbia is the, the Council of uh, right. Forest Industry. And, uh, you know, and I'm the longest serving director on the Council of Forest Industry and the only one that has no timber. And I'm okay. also the vice chair. Can you believe it? <laughs> and, and I'm an advocate of adding more social and economic value. We employ 400 people, but we don't cut a single tree. I believe where the future lies, Rob, is that the sawmill of the future, and although we see some restructuring mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. because of beetle kill and other things mm -hmm. that have reduced the annual allowable cut, that I believe the future lies in innovative primary that yep. means not just making spaghetti and, and combination with intensive secondary. That's where the future lies. Becoming better tenure, uh, better stewards to our resource, growing more forest, right. that, uh, and then manufacturing more. That if the, the sawmill now becomes one that is still in transition, where the objective is to cut more volume through the sawmill, employ less people. And it will go the other way where we are not necessarily volume oriented, but value right. oriented. And then examples of what can be is a company like Brick sitting up the street, my company. I started it in 1975. We employ 400 people. Yeah. And, we have, and I've operated for 47 years. And, and we, we, I guarantee you, we will double in size in the next five years. Hmm. And, and how we will do it is innovative products for new, new products for new markets. And then at the same time, you know, pushing forward the idea of the center of excellence where mm -hmm. we can develop new equipment, the new entrepreneurship, new products for new markets, not just the same old dementia, two before two before, and on and on and on. No, no, we, we have all of the things that it takes. Now we have to, to develop the skill sets, hence UNBC, CNC, mm -hmm. Center of Excellence, mm -hmm. where we become the leaders, not only as it relates to uh, the footprint and all the other things related to the things that you're doing, but to attract an industry that specializes in those areas. And they can and will be successful in that. We what, are. What do you see as the, as the main triggers for the innovation? So when you're talking about new products, what, what, are the, what is stimulating that? Is it, is it taller wooden buildings like what we saw? Is it, is it uh, um, a different sort of a strengths versus weight? Like what, what's, what's, driving, what's driving the new products? The new products is going to be mass timber to a certain extent yeah. is something to do. I wrote a business plan in 1975, 47 years ago, that already included then laminating of timber yeah. into different products. For yeah. It already then included the idea of finger jointing and doing other things. 
and and it's still in my business plan today that I had then 47 years ago yeah. and on that I started this company it will go much further we intend to build uh, any of development that we do in our commercial site uh, it's sitting on the end of uh, you probably know where it is uh, will all be built with CLT and and then we have also property here where I want to develop a CLT tower of about 16 or 70 stories never announced it but that's what I want you to just do. did I just did <laughs> we will do that we will lead the way and uh, uh, because I believe that's where the future is hence I'm talking to uh, the University of Northern British Columbia uh, you know uh, uh, Jeff Kane and the same is we're very blessed with having mm -hmm. those kind of people and then the same with uh, Dr. Dennis Johnson uh, yep. from CNC and we need that center of excellence because that's where we will develop the skill sets entrepreneurship and where we will develop technology that that is utilized in terms of manufacturing new products for new markets but also managing uh, you know the land base in terms of where we can have right. uh, you know uh, uh, robots uh, you know managing the land base managed by uh, satellites and, and and other things that automatically manage that uh, resource and we will increase the yield per hectare yeah. by at least 50%. So where we will have like in Sweden, but we have seen 35 sawmills have been shut down in British Columbia and the annual allowable cut has, has been dropped, reduced yeah. by half. Yeah. They had the same in Sweden. Where now today they got again doing as one part, not all the parts, but, but approaching it from a different angle. They grow more forest per mm -hmm. hectare and now they're in a situation where they do not have enough conversion or sawmill capacity to handle all the wood you know and that's exactly where we will go not saying okay well we're done now we'll invest our money elsewhere right. no no what we now have to do is look at it and saying the industry is in transition we are all part of that that brings back the idea of the social contract that is right. if you have the privilege of access to timber we demand that you then uh, you know part of that is a social contract uh, you know, to a certain extent, a potency in a way. In a way. Yeah. In a way. And yeah. then, uh, you know, and at the same time, uh, reward, you know, those that add more value. Right. And that we still are not there in terms of policy now, right. but government policy will move and is moving in that direction. So the, do you see that, so with mass timber, typically people would look to those products to replace things like steel. Um, so that you would be able to have, which to date at least, hard to know where R&D will go in that direction as well, but to date steel is a fairly high carbon emitter in the production. Yeah. Um, wood stores carbon um, and, is renew and is a renewable resource. And so I think people have been talking about mass timber a lot as a way, as a sort of a carbon story. Yeah. Uh, do you see the same? Do you see this Absolutely. this movement really being a, around a, a basically the the carbon constrained world? It's all happening as we speak. Yeah, no question about that. Unstoppable, no question about it. And that will follow industry and entrepreneurship will follow it because they see that as an investment that will create rewards for right. them. And then government policy has to follow that too. That has not quite happened there. Like, uh, you know, we struggle all this. We want to double our size of our company. Double it. You know, and, and what is our problem? Access to fiber. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so that, uh, you know, that area still has not been sorted out the way it should be, but it will be. Right. No question about it. And people like my, myself and, and others are speaking about it louder and louder and louder and not only doing it, but also doing it physically. Great potential. Yeah, agreed. That's why, Rob. I mean, that's why I wanted to be in this space. I, I think the, the change that we're witnessing right before our eyes, um, living through, I think is, is fascinating. And I, and I, I think, or sometimes I, I worry that, you know, climate change has a negative connotation and obviously it's not a, it's not a good news story by any stretch of the imagination, but it doesn't mean that we have to sort of accept, uh, it to be a, a, a disaster. I think it we creates need, new opportunities. It, it does. No, it can, and and I think we need to we need to be we need to be open to that. And I and and maybe the names on the buildings will change, you know. But there will be new entrepreneurs that mm -hmm. come forward that see those opportunities and will take advantage of. Because how can you be the living in this country, in this province, in this area, with all the resources that we have? The, you know, the, it it is a entrepreneur's paradise. Mm -hmm in terms of location to the marketplace. And sometimes what has to happen, there has to be a shake up and all of a sudden new capital will move in. But the key is to have, you know, that as I said to you earlier and, and when I made my presentation at CNC, when we uh, donated part of our getting that building done and when I was involved with uh, uh, UNBC and, and, and I believe so deeply in the center of excellence, we must have the skill sets that without that, and, and we will not attract the capital, even if we have the resources, but we must be ahead of it and develop the skill sets. Yeah. Wrong. How do you disagree with that? An amazing discussion. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, John. And, and amazing to, you know, kind of look back at your life and uh, at UNBC and then all the way through, you have left uh, our, our living an absolutely amazing life in the most beautiful place, as you well know. Okay, uh, so the the other thing that, uh, well, so what I did is, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I I wrote a book, you know, it took me 80 years to live it, <laughs> 20 years to think about it, yeah. two years to write it, and so I've done that it. That sounds about right, actually. Yeah. To get those, those are good proportions. <laughs> sounds like a few uh, term papers we've all written, isn't it? And so I did it and, uh, you know, so, and I'm going to give you a copy of it and I'm going to sign it. Rob, again, Thank my you. pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Terrific. I hope, you're, I hope there's a little bit in here about a pertinency, I hope. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs>